Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. We're winding down to the end of another week here at Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Very glad to have all of you with us for today's show. Lots to talk about, so let me get right to the panel and uh, go on from there. Of course, that's Jim Galloway's day. He's with us on Mondays and Fridays, and as you know, he's the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You read him on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper, and he oversees the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. And Jim, in a little while, you dropped a brand new column about criminal justice uh, 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 this morning, and I thought it was terrific, and I'm going to try to carve out a little time so we can talk about your point and bring the panel in on it. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing, uh, I kind of uh, had some sleep issues after that exciting debate. <laughs> which we will talk about a little bit later uh, in the show. Um, we're also joined by Professor Karen Owen. She, of course, is a political science professor at the University of West Georgia. Uh, Karen, uh, right before the show, we were talking a little bit about how we watched the debate. You stayed up to watch it last night, too, right? I did, and I was saying that it's important for me, at least, to watch it live while it's going. Yeah, you've got to, you want to see the real deal. You don't want to watch the replay a little later. Um, we're also joined this morning uh, by uh, uh, two men who have had long careers in politics on opposite sides of the aisles, but have always been uh, the kind of collegial uh, political leaders who know how to get along, and we see that from them every time they're on the show. They are Sam Olins who is the former attorney general of the state of Georgia and before that chairman of the Cobb County uh, Commission for a number of years, and now a partner with Denton's, the world's largest law firm. Good morning, Sam. How are you? Great. Good to be with you all today. And, of course, good to be with uh, the CEO of DeKalb County, who's a great Georgian. Michael Thurman is who he is talking about with us today. He is the current CEO of DeKalb County, former state labor commissioner, candidate for the United States Senate as a Democrat in 2010, former state legislator from Athens, Georgia, and and we should add a historian and author as well. How are you doing, Michael? Uh, I'm doing great, Bill. Delighted to be with everyone and my friend, uh, Attorney General Sam Olins. Always good to be here uh, discussing the issues of today. Well, uh, I want to get to the, all, all of those, but let me give you the latest report on early voting and absentee voting in uh, Georgia so far. We come to the end of another week of early voting, and absentee ballots continue to be received and approved uh, in most counties across the state. At this point, we are up to 2.3 million votes already cast and counted. Jim Galloway, with one week of early voting still ahead of us, it ends next Friday, the 30th of October, it, if we anticipate, as most people do, some 5 million voters uh, in Georgia this elections, uh, uh, in this election, we may have as many as two-thirds of the votes already in by the time we get to November 3rd, which, as our friend Mike Jablonski likes to call it, the last day of voting. Yeah, yeah. This is Look, uh, we're, already, we're already past half the votes that were cast in the 2016 election, which I just find, uh, find amazing. And uh, yeah, you're right. You're right. We could, we could reach half the five million that are expected. Uh, and and uh, the the other part of this is is that the election pool has now been set. Voting re voter registration is closed. What we know now is we've got a million new voters since 2016, and and almost half are under the age of 35, and two thirds are people of color. This really changes. Uh, it, it changes the landscape tremendously. I mean, in 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 2012, white white voters made up 59 percent of the electorate. In 20, 2016, they were 57. Now they're 53 percent. That's 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 some serious change afoot. 
Yeah, and of course, what uh, uh, candidates on both sides of the races uh, can only hope is that all those people who register actually follow up and go out and vote. Um, Michael Thurman, let's get a report uh, from on the ground in DeKalb County, one of the largest counties, obviously, in the state. Uh, How is early voting going? How are the absentee ballots? I understand as CEO, you do not oversee the election. There's a separate election board that does that. Nevertheless, you're obviously keeping on top of it. What's going on in DeKalb right now? We had extremely... Uh, an extremely high turnout on the first day of early voting as well as the second day. Uh, The reports I'm getting is that there's been a steady stream of voters, although the wait times are very reasonable. Uh, We expanded the number of early voting sites, and, you know, we've had challenges in the past with uh, making sure that everyone has equal and fair access. So, so far, so good. And uh, we've been encouraged by the turnout, and it's been countywide, north and south, east and west. Karen, uh, the, there has been some concern, especially among Democrats, who think that they are more likely to win the student vote in this cycle, that with so many college campuses closed down and doing virtual learning, that uh, college students may not be and uh, incentivized to vote the way they have in the past. What's going on out at West Georgia? Are there polling? Is there a polling place on campus? Are students on? I'm not even sure how much on-campus learning is going on at your university right now. So I think you're correct in the concerns that I would think both parties have about the student vote and whether they can actually turn out. At West Georgia, we do have students on campus because we are offering face-to-face classes, but the political active, you know, campus college young Republicans and the college, and the young Democrats or college Republicans, young Democrats, they are having to look at different ways to mobilize the college students to vote. Um, it's not been the t- typical place where you can have, you know, events on campus, bring in speakers and kind of generate that. We're not seeing that. And Jim, and you meant, you know, the, the article in the paper about there's one million new voters and many of those half, I think he said, were under the age of 35. And a lot of that is the registration of the 18 to 22 year olds that have been mobilized. But I, you know, anecdotally this week talking to my students who are freshmen and sophomores, they are not energized to vote in this election. They do not feel like either candidate is speaking to them and that those candidates seem to be very much the same. So I think it's going to be an interesting uh, look to see if those students do turn out and do get active and mobilized. So, uh, Sam, let me bring you in, if I may, please. A couple things, really, to pick up on. Number one, uh, we'll all, we all recall, and talking about student voting, the University of Georgia uh, got itself caught up in a controversy earlier in the cycle when uh, they announced they would not have a polling place open on campus, and there was an uproar about that. They finally decided to uh, open one. Uh, but as Karen points out, it's interesting that, as usual, Her observations are that, once again, Sam, young people are not as energized about voting, which is a a problem we've seen for decades. Well, in every uh, national election, um, the Democrats count on those young people and seldom are they rewarded with those people showing up to the the ballot box. Um, I think that uh, it's very sad that we're having trouble getting more young people to vote. Everyone, no matter what party you are, wants everyone to vote. Um, I think that the other interesting issue, Jim gave a bunch of stats, but I think that the other interesting stat is two-thirds of those new one million voters are people of color. And if if you're a a Democrat, you've got to be smiling with that percentage. Uh, And you've got to, uh, if you're a Republican, you've got to do a lot more work to entice those young uh, people of color to vote for your candidates. Um, all right. Well, we're going to continue to watch how the voting goes in the with this next week ahead, and we'll report it out to you. Um, as I said at the very top of the show, we are going to talk about last night's presidential debate, but, but I, I want to defer that until we've had a chance to talk about what's going on in some Georgia elections. Uh, Jim, 
because the two Senate races have, have gotten so much attention um, from the media, and I include this show, uh, we have not spent as much time talking about some of the other uh, big elections, and, and certainly that includes the two Metro Atlanta congressional races, which um, are, are terribly important right now. The 6th District, Lucy McBath and Karen Handel. The 7th, Rich McCormick and Carolyn Bordeaux. Um, so let's talk for a few minutes about those races. And Jim, let me start it by pointing out uh, what I did at the very top of the show. The uh, Cook Report, which is obviously one of the most closely followed um, reports on politics, data crunchers in terms of politics, is now has now moved the 6th District race from leaning to likely Democratic, saying that uh, Lucy McBath is likely to win re-election. What are the dynamics of that race right now as we go into the final week of campaigning? Well, I, I think it's best done by comparing it with the, with the 7th District. I mean, the 6th District is kind of at the noon position in Metro Atlanta, and and, and the 7th is more like one thirty or 2 o'clock uh, uh, with Gwinnett and Forsyth, uh, the seventh district is is the the base is is Gwinnett, and Gwinnett is turning is already uh, majority minority. It's it's got a, a just a, a tremendously diverse uh, 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 population right now, in, including in, in its voting voting population as well. So that, that's that's kind of the, the way that demographics and and politics are linked in Georgia. That's kind of a, a natural that it, that it that it that it would be a, a natural flip is 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 kind of uh, is kind of expected. I find the sixth district actually more intriguing because Gwinnett in, in Gwinnett maybe less than fifty percent or maybe a little bit less of of uh, in the seventh district. Uh, the 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 elect the so the votes cast so far are about half white voters, all right. In the sixth district, it's seventy percent white voters, and yet uh, people like the Cook report are still saying that it's likely Democrat. To me, that's the more significant shift. You've got white voters flocking into the Democratic uh, in, into the Democratic camp. Michael and then Sam, jump in on this. Well, first, I think we should really recognize something that the national media has really overlooked about Lucy Macbeth. This is an outstanding, uh, not just public servant, but she has uh, uh, excellent political skills and instincts. Uh, one of the mistakes that we've made as Democrats is that we, obviously we watch the, demo, the uh, demographic trends but demographic trends don't necessarily equate into election victories. So what Lucy Macbeth has done, I think she is the one who's plotting the way forward for the Georgia Democratic Party to return to power in our state. But for whatever reason, uh, those of us in politics, we don't give her enough credit. It's not easy beating a Karen Handel in that district and definitely beating her twice. But she's positioned herself as a right uh, to left candidate, and she's done it extremely well. She's beat back the defund the police department narrative. She's beat back the liberal who doesn't care about American values. And that's why she's in a position that she's in to be reelected in a district that had been a Republican district for decades. So shout out to Lucy Macbeth. Let's give her some credit. So the growth in the Sam, district, that's your territory. Well, it's my former territory. The uh, the district's right. very different than it was under Newt. The eastern part of that district is solidly Democratic, and I would suggest that the district that is most apt to be uh, affected with redistricting, if you assume the Republicans maintain control of the state house and state senate, they're they are going to clearly change the. Uh, configuration of the 6th Congressional District to give them a better likelihood of success in that district. Um, I think um, Congresswoman McBath, as Mike stated, does a nice job of trying to stay towards the center on most issues. My only criticism, frankly, is uh, I think she needs to be out there a lot more than I see her. Uh, I, I don't see her in the community. I don't see 
and I'm talking pre-COVID, where, of course, people couldn't do that. Um, she's very much relied more on social media even before COVID. And, and I think if there's a criticism, they, they actually want to see more of her throughout the district, and I think that may hurt her. Um, Karen, we've been talking about all of these uh, nationalized races. We've been talking about all these races and nationalized, that that President Trump plays a huge uh, role in how voters in something like the 6th, 7th District, certainly the Senate races, see the election. Um, Is that true in those uh, congressional races as well? Or are the points that Sam and Michael are making about how uh, Macbeth has positioned herself quite carefully, just as important. So I think both races, the sixth and the seventh, we are seeing nationalized topics and issues coming in because we have outside funding, super PACs and PACs from the uh, House uh, caucuses are putting money and advertising out, which is affecting some of the messaging. I do believe that Sam and, and Mike have hit the point very well that it is in the sixth district, particularly about the candidates, because it is a rematch of two from the previous election. And that McBath has to definitely kind of play into the middle to ensure that she's getting suburban women's votes and she's not alienate them. And then I think, too, a point about the sixth is that. You know, Karen Handel has always done really well in North Fulton and in those precincts, and she's got to continue to turn out those voters if she wants to overcome, I think Sam said, the eastern part of that district, but particularly maybe that wave in the Dunwoody area and then the sliver, I think, that's in part of DeKalb. The 7th District, I think, is interesting in the fact that it is nationalized a lot, and you're seeing some advertising, but I think there's money particularly highly uh, driven on the Carolyn Bordeaux side, Bordeaux side because uh, nationally people are saying this is the district that's most likely to flip. And so there's a lot of money coming in to provide her resources to turn out the vote and get her message across. So, Sam, it really isn't necessarily a surprise that CNN would say that the 7th is the most likely district to flip from red to blue. We know, of course, that Rob Woodall, who has held that district as a Republican, has retired, is retiring from Congress because, after all, Carolyn Bordeaux only lost as the Democrat in that race by 500 votes the last time around. So it's not surprising CNN says that could flip most easily. No, I, I, I think you've got to agree. If there's a, uh, a race in Georgia that is most apt to flip, it's the seventh. And as you mentioned, I think at the very beginning of the show, the endorsement by future Congresswoman Marjorie Green is not one that necessarily helps the candidate in the seventh. You know, keep in mind the current congressman for the seventh uh, was a very moderate Republican. And there is no such thing as a moderate in the seventh district race this year at all. Okay, so Jim, Marjorie Taylor Greene, apparently this was an unsolicited endorsement, at least the way I've read the stories about it. She just decided to weigh in and say Rich McCormick is the guy for the job. So there is a dynamic there that's interesting. Clearly, Gwinnett County is now far more Democratic, and that doesn't help him to have her support there. But he's he. But 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 that that Forsyth uh, swatch of the district, it, there's still a pretty conservative bunch up there. So, what's the impact of Marjorie Greene's endorsement? Well, it's 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 very interesting. I, I'm I'm not sure. I, I don't know whether it was solicited or un, unsolicited. I, I I would almost use the word impromptu endorsement. There, uh, it was okay. a, photo, a tweeted a, a photo of 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 she tweeted a photo of herself and 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 Rich McCormick out. I mean, it, it, Rich McCormick is an interesting candidate. Of course, you know that he beat Renee Unterman without a runoff uh, in in the Republican primary. He's an emergency room doctor, and and his 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 resume appeal was was that uh, he's he's uh, a former Marine, but he also. Uh, uh, received his medical degree from Morehouse School of Medicine, uh, so that was that, that's it's, uh, that was supposed to be his kind of his entree to the to 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 a minority community, uh, and 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 Gwinnett's it's Gwinnett has just a, a, 
it has probably the highest percentage of foreign-born voters in the state. I think I, I think that's that's pretty clear. And and Marjorie Taylor Greene is something of a nativist candidate, um, if you will. So what what he's done, what has happened, is it's it's not something he can walk away from specifically because, as you point out, Forsyth County is still heavily Republican. Uh, but it's also something that he can't wave, uh, wave around. And uh, and uh, Carolyn Bordeaux is making sure that everybody has seen that picture of him standing there with Green. To me, it was a misstep. And, and to Jim's point, uh, his, his campaign and his TV commercials emphasizing not only that he graduated from the Mohawk School of Medicine, but he was president of his class. He had some very... Uh, convincing African-American doctors speaking on his behalf. And now this, and that's millions of dollars, I think, wasted by this. I guess it was a misstep. It's just like the old blues song. I think B.B. King used to sing, I got some outside help I don't really need. That's what that was, <laughs> outside help. <laughs> you know, Karen, it, it's the kind of – so however the endorsement came about – it is kind of a rookie move on Marjorie Greene's part. She's a new she's new to politics. We all know that there are there are politicians, Newt Gingrich perhaps being an example of this, who will say to a, a, a candidate, "Hey, I can either help you by staying far away from your race or by getting deeply engaged in your race. You tell me." And and the candidate like a Marjorie Greene who doesn't get that has some lessons to learn. <laughs> Correct. And I think that you're right. It is a rookie mistake. She has that district in her hands because she's not actually probably campaigning hard in the 14th. She thought she would get involved in some other races. But at some point, you have to know as a candidate where you can help and where you can hurt. And thus, you have to be careful where you play your hand. Okay, so those will be interesting races uh, to watch uh, play out, the 6th and 7th District, and will tell us an awful lot about just how blue uh, North Georgia, Metro Atlanta, has actually uh, turned, and we'll keep paying attention to those. Uh, Let me turn uh, for just a couple of minutes to the Senate uh, race, uh, Senate race number two. Um, Jim, interesting that the New York Times-Siena poll that came out uh, beginning of the week, uh, looked at the George, their Georgia numbers, looked at uh, the fantasy matchup between uh, Raphael Warnock, who they expect to win the Democratic nomination based on their polling, and either Kelly Leffler uh, or Doug Collins. And th- th- to the extent that matchups like that are l- really don't tell us a whole lot, they, it nevertheless says that Warnock beats both of them by about the same margin, 44 to 41, 45, 41 percent. Right. And, and, and if you look deeper into the, into the, 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 the crosstabs and the demographic breakdowns, uh, they, they, uh, both uh, Leffler and Collins get this, uh, an identical share of the vote. Uh, so it's, it's, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, what this means is that there's, they've been so busy fighting each other, Leffler and Collins, the two Republicans, that, that Warnock has really gotten uh, a, a free ride, if you will. Uh, and they, mm-hmm. nobody has a- actually focused on him. And, and no one is making the argument, neither Leffler nor Collins is making the argument, is I'm the best candidate to go up against Raphael Warnock. Ah, that's interesting. Um, Sam, uh, we're continuing to see Republican leaders in Georgia uh, in in a split over Collins and Leffler. Um, Most recently, David Ralston was up campaigning for uh, Collins in uh, Ellijay, and uh, he really took a few shots at her. He mocked her for having four jet planes, he says. He says most people he knows are still working on their first private jet. Uh, and he said her numbers are dropping like a stone. Um, what is, how is this ongoing tension hurting the leadership of the Georgia Republican Party moving forward? Oh, c- clearly it's hurting a lot. Uh, he also, the speaker also made a comment that she married well. Um, yeah. And, you know, very unfortunate. I mean, fr- frankly, the um, schism involving those two candidates and their supporters 
is certainly not what the Georgia Republican Party needed at a time that the state is purple. Uh, I do think that um, irrespective of what is said now, uh, 90 percent of those people will come together in January uh, for a runoff. But I think it's very unfortunate now. It certainly doesn't help numerous other elections. Uh, and I think that the tone of the discourse between the two candidates uh, bodes very poorly to encourage uh, mainstream Americans to get out and vote for either of them. Yeah. Karen, ironically, we know that, uh, or we assume that Brian Kemp thought that by naming Kelly Loeffler to be the temporary holder of uh, the Johnny Isaacson Senate seat, he would bring some of the suburban women back into the fold, those who've been alienated by the Trump uh, administration so far. Ironically, the New York Times-Siena poll suggests that uh, she has a greater gap in terms of approval among women than, than does Doug Collins. But also of interest is that she is now playing the gender card in terms of accusing Collins. And really, we heard a little bit of that from what Sam just said about David Ralston uh, how she's gotten all this help from her husband. Can we play the sound of what Kelly, how Kelly Leffler used that in the debate the other day with Doug Collins, please? Kelly, you talk tough about China, but you refuse to delist corporations that are owned by the Chinese Communist Party from the New York Stock Exchange, which you own. So I have a question for you. Do you still have the $56,000 portrait of Chairman Mao hanging in your foyer as it was seen on social media? Seems a little hypocritical. I, I'm glad I'm glad you asked that question, uh, Congressman. You know, I think Georgians are tired of lies. Um, hardworking Georgians want the truth. They're tired of a campaign that has been filled with lies directed at me. Let me tell you the truth. Governor Kemp appointed me because I am the true conservative in this race. Now, look, you've said I have no place here, that I'm only here because of my husband, that I should do something I'm qualified for. But you know what? You've attacked my hair, my makeup, how I talk, my clothes, where I'm from. You've lied about me. You've lied about my family. And let me tell you, here's the truth. I'm here because I've earned everything I got. I am the true conservative. I don't have to have a record that I have to lie about and cover up. I encourage everyone to look at Doug Collins for Senate.com and understand he is one of the most liberal Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives. That's why Governor Kemp appointed to me to the Senate. And I'm fighting for every single Georgian's chance to live the American dream. That I was okay, so we played a lot of that out there. But, Karen, the point is still clear. I mean, that was the first time, at least in my uh, that I'm aware of, which she really did say, you're attacking me because I'm a woman. And, and in many ways, that could be effective. But what did you think when you heard her talk, say those things? Well, I think it's the first time she's addressing how difficult it is for women who are running in politics, that they're fighting against this double standard of they have to be super qualified to be the candidate, show their credentials, but then they also have to answer the questions about their feminism their compassion, their stance, and how they look and how they dress. And so she brought that up to the forefront. And I think that, you know, that is a place where other, what female voters understand that women candidates have a different um, message that they have to work with and that they have to kind of counter that. Now, when Sam talks about the GOP in Georgia, I think the state Republican Party has to think about Going forward, if they want to continue to bring women into the fold, they're going to have to support and talk about how they push female candidates out there. And the other piece is that for Leffler, she's mentioned this, but now's the time she's got to pivot and start really talking to women about how she identifies with them. Because I think Speaker Ralston made a point about how he didn't know her well, but he had heard that some women didn't really identify with her because she didn't understand where they are. And I've heard that from suburban women as well, that their life is a lot different than what it appears Kelly Leffler's life is like. And I think as she campaigns, if she's going to talk about this, you know, attacks on her being a woman, she's also going to have to explain how she can identify with other women in the electorate. Mike, let me give you the last chance before we take a break. This is a fascinating proxy war between Governor Kemp, the Speaker, 
and uh, Stacey Abrams. Uh, Sam spoke, I think, very correctly. Historically, the, the Republicans, even more so than the Democrats, have been able to coalesce after divisive uh, primaries. But I don't know about this one. This is extremely personal and toxic, and it raises the specter that come January that the Republicans won't be able uh, to develop that coalition that's worked so well for them uh, for the last two decades. And, you know, it's hard, though, for Ms. Leffler to be more conservative than Attila the Hun and then switch right back to raising issues about, uh, uh, you know, feminist attacks. And, it, I mean, what Collins did was just unacceptable to me, but at the same time, you can't play it both ways. Either you Attila the Hun or you run to ensure equity for women uh, in the political arena. It's just hard to do both. You get whiplash uh, listening to them. All right. <laughs> Give Michael Thurman the last word in this segment. We're going to take a break right now and come back with a lot more on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back uh, to Political Rewind. Uh, Jim Galloway, Sam Olins, Michael Thurman, Karen Owen are with us today. Um, Jim, uh, you may not even have a chance to look at this yet, but um, Amelia and Sam just sent me a note the, uh, that your colleague Greg, Greg Blusine had just posted. I'll read you the lead. John Ossoff's aide said Friday that operatives with the conservative group Project Veritas Action recently tried to infiltrate the Democrats' campaign for U.S. Senate and recorded undercover video of his parents and a field organizer. They apparently, according to the Bluestein story, Project Veritas lured a field worker for Ossoff to a coffee shop, allegedly to have a date with a young woman. When, the, when he got there, uh, the head of Project Veritas jumped out with a camera and began questioning him about the uh, Ossoff uh, campaign. I would think, Jim, we're going to hear more of that from the Ossoff people in the hours ahead today. And and we're and we're likely to hear about that from the Veritas people. Yeah, that that was a, it's a it's a little bit of a shocker. Obviously, I mean, clearly the Ossoff people are trying to get uh, out in front and get their story uh, out there out there first. But uh, just the idea of uh, luring a campaign worker to a, you know on uh, this was supposed to be something like a predate. Uh, just, that is, that's, we haven't seen that kind of politics in Georgia in a, in a good while, in in decades, I think. Uh, yeah. And, and then, and Um, and then, and then, uh, internet video wasn't, wasn't the, uh, wasn't the object. All right. Well, I just thought I'd give you all a little uh, sample of a story that you're obviously going to hear about coming up, uh, throughout the day and probably throughout the weekend as well. Uh, All right, let's do this. Let's talk a little bit about the presidential debate last night. I want to start, clearly, COVID-19 continues to be a driving issue in the campaign. Uh, Let me me play a soundbite of the uh, encounter between Trump and Biden on that issue, one of their encounters on that issue, and use that to set up the broader conversation in which I'll ask each of you to kind of give your thoughts on what you saw unfold last night. Nevertheless, here's how the debate started with a conversation about the coronavirus. Let's listen. We're going to hear, uh, and you'll recognize it, Donald Trump first. 2.2 million people modeled out were expected to die. We closed up the greatest economy in the world in order to fight this horrible disease that came from China. It's a worldwide pandemic. It's all over the world. You see the spikes in Europe and many other places right now. Uh, If you notice, the mortality rate is down 85%. We have a vaccine that's coming. It's ready. It's going to be announced within weeks, and it's going to be delivered. We have 
uh, Operation Warp Speed, which is the military is going to distribute the vaccine? 220,000 Americans dead. If you hear nothing else I say tonight, hear this. Anyone who's responsible for not taking control, in fact, not saying I'm, I take no responsibility initially, anyone who's responsible for that many deaths should not remain as President of the United States of America. We're in a situation where there are a thousand deaths a day now, a thousand deaths a day, and there are over 70,000 new cases per day. And I say we're learning to live with it. We have no choice. We can't lock ourselves up in a basement like Joe does. He has the <laughs> he has the ability to lock himself up. I don't know. He's obviously made a lot of money someplace. He says that we're uh, you know we're learning to live with it. People are learning to die with it. So Sam Olins, uh, you can certainly talk about that exchange, but in a broader sense, um, did anybody gain anything in terms of momentum toward? Uh, winning the election in the debate as it unfolded in your point, uh, from your point of view? So I think the only benefit, frankly, was, uh, as Jake Tapper said uh, sarcastically, uh, the president acted normal or more normal uh, from Jake Tapper's perspective. Uh, they were both generally uh, well-behaved, uh, they both were what the public wanted to see in a high-profile debate. And due to the uh, president's actions at the first debate, I, I think that helps the president simply that he was more low-key. Um, they both got in points against each other, as you showed there. I mean, it's easy for Biden to claim that every death is a, is a result of the president's actions, which is clearly not um, fair. I mean, you've got a new disease. You've got to first figure out what it is and how you deal with it. You could question methodology, but to place all the onus on the president, it, it, I think, is very unfair. And similarly, the president had the uh, opportunity numerous times to ask the former vice president why he has so many plans now that he never accomplished in his 47 years of political life. And, and I think that's frankly a pretty good argument. You know, you you want Biden care. You want. You know, I never knew that you name things after yourself, even after you do it, let alone before you do it. Uh, this thing in Georgia where you name things after people before the die before they die, I've never been comfortable with. But you know, by by definition, why is he proposing so many new changes now that didn't occur during eight years when he was vice president? So I think the long and short of it is they both got in points. Their supporters both can look at different uh, arguments with favor. But I think the president overall got a little gain just because uh, the debate was so civil. Michael, I, let me propose something to you and, and then give everybody else a chance at this, too. Um, if, if Joe Biden goes on to win this election, I'm wondering if one of the ways in which we're all, and people much smarter than I am, are going to uh, assess why things happened the way they did, why Trump lost, one of the things that I think we're going to talk about is why didn't he just acknowledge what a deadly disease this is, how, what the terrible toll it's taken on Americans, and how difficult getting it under control has been instead of repeatedly saying we're turning the corner. We're now at a point where one in every 1,000 Am Americans have, have tested positive for the virus. Two in every 100,000 have died of it. it. It's baffling to me to under not understand why the president hasn't been able to acknowledge how difficult the fight is and they have to do better. I agree. And studying uh, Mr. Biden and President Trump. And one of the things I do is study leaders so that hopefully I can become a better leader. And the great deficit that the president continues to uh, reveal about himself is this lack of empathy for others, uh, which is what you just described. And I thought the critical moment, if the president loses this campaign, was quite frankly, the potential blessing he received by a positive test for COVID-19. It would have been at that moment in time, he could have emerged 
uh, from Walter Reed with a different perspective, more empathy, more concern, and quite frankly, being a little bit more humble about a, corona, a novel virus that we've never had to face before. I don't think that anyone reasonably or rationally blames him. Uh, this is something unique to the world, and it's impacting nations all over the world. The question is, how do you respond? Uh, we'll get a vaccine. Uh, the therapeutics are, are becoming more successful. But the one thing a leader can do where there's really no limit to the reservoir is to be empathetic and concerned about the American people. Joe Biden has basically cut a new path in politics from the last 30 years. He is reaching out to all Americans. He, like he said, no red states or blue states. If he wins, you're going to see a completely different political environment in Washington, and I hope all across this nation, so that we can solve some of the pressing problems that we face. So following you know, some of the points that both Sam and Mike have said, I think a lot of what we saw in the debate was a, a, a look at what is leadership and how each of these are men are going to present themselves leading for the next four years. And I think that part of what we saw is Trump came out very measured in his tone and allowing the conversation to move so that people could hear Joe Biden. We also saw a lot that the president was on defense and uh, wasn't able to play offense except for on certain points, but he has to defend the record he has had over the last few years. I think that Biden had the ability to lay out some of his plans, but in some of that you could tell by the end of the debate, you know, watching it live in those last 30 minutes, I felt like Biden started to lose some of his energy and he started to say things that maybe weren't on key messaging, which the president may be able to take advantage of over the next, you know, few days and his advertising. I would say, too, though, that really the debate move anyone. There's only 2%, I think I read in Georgia right now, that are still undecided. And I don't think that this debate is going to, you know, bring up some kind of great point where they're like, yes, this is the candidate I want now. Uh, yeah, Bill, let me, let me uh, toss in two, two points here. Number one, uh, t uh, I agree with Sam. That, that was a different and, and, and a, a better Donald Trump than we've seen before. And, and if, he had, if he had shown that kind of demeanor in the very first debate, I think these last few, the last few weeks of this campaign would be, would be pretty different. Uh, but still, they are the, – the, his, his, his strategy is just uh, so muddled. What we haven't talked about is the fact that this debate was preceded by his decision to, to send out uh, the videotape of, of an interview that he did with Leslie Stahl for 60 Minutes, in which he said, I hope that the Supreme Court overturns uh, Obamacare. And and gets gets rid of it, and and in the middle of a pandemic, I mean, uh, you were just feeding uh, Joe Biden your best line of the night. All right, let's do this. Let's get our final uh, break of the show out of the way and come back. I do want to talk a little more about uh, the debate. Play you all a cut, just a couple more uh, sound cuts from it, and uh, we'll do that after these messages. Karen Owen, Michael Thurman, Sam uh, Olins, and Jim Galloway uh, with me today. By the way, Jim Galloway, uh, Karen made the point about how the campaigns are going to try to, will po probably be able to find things they can take out of the debate and use in the next week. One of them, especially when, as Karen points out, maybe Biden stopped uh, thinking as clearly as he was earlier in the debate, got a little tired, uh, saying that he's going to get rid of fossil fuels is not going to help him with what apparently is a very close race in Texas. I think that's something, if I were the Trump campaign, I'd be playing on a loop to the extent they have money to afford advertising down there. And, 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 and if I'm not mistaken, they're still drilling for oil in Pennsylvania. <laughs> in Pennsylvania as well. That's exactly right. Okay, um, I want to I want to address very briefly because it, it's the sound that I think, and, and at the end of the soundbite that I think there's something to talk about. But we have not talked. Neither have many news organizations about this report published by the New York Post uh, this earlier in the week. Uh, it's based on 
a guy who does computer repairs in Wilmington, Delaware, who says that somebody came into his shop, maybe Joe Biden's son, Hunter, gave him the laptop to repair it. By the way, the guy is blind, so he could not verify that it really was Hunter Biden. The guy, Hunter Biden or whoever, never picked it up back up again. He looked at the hard drive. It had all sorts of incriminating evidence about Hunter Biden and about Joe Biden and business deals that uh, the vice president was willing to let his son get engaged with. Um, and, and nobody wants to. The, the, the main writer on this story for The New York Post would not have his byline on it because he was he thought it was a suspect story. It came from Rudolph Giuliani. Uh, the Wall Street Journal this uh, yesterday, last night, uh, the reporters from the journal criticized a columnist from the journal who took advantage of all the the information that that hard drive was supposed to uh, show uh, about the corruption. Uh, and the reporters turned around and did a story saying it was all fake information. Okay, I just set that up because on a number of occasions last night, in a very vague way, President Trump tried to paint the picture of a corrupt Joe Biden. Let's listen to that exchange with uh, Trump going first. I guarantee you, if I spent one million on you, Joe, I could find plenty wrong. Because right. the kind of things that you've done and the kind of monies that your family has taken, I mean, your brother made money in Iraq. Millions of dollars. Your other brother made a fortune. And it's all through you, Joe. And they say you get some of it. He doesn't want to talk about the, the, the substantive issues. It's not about his family and my family. It's about your family. And your family's hurting badly. If you're making less than, if you're a middle class family, you're getting hurt badly right now. That's Ten a seconds. typical political statement. Let's get off this China thing. And then he looks, the family, around the table, everything. Just right. a typical politician when I see that. Let's talk I'm about not North a typical Korea politician. Okay, That's why I got elected. So, Michael, I played that partly to say that this is going to be an attack that uh, is used against uh, Biden for the final week. All of this alleged uh, uh, corruption based on this uh, questionable hard drive. But I also played it because there's this conversation now about what kind of empathy is, is Trump able to show. And at the end of that soundbite, he mocks Joe Biden for saying essentially, you know, this campaign is about you, the people, and the, your needs, and Trump mocks him for it. Not a very good impression for the president to make at this moment. My late mother would always consider the source. So you got Donald Trump criticizing uh, Joe Biden's children for taking advantage of political positions and or generating or earning money. That is the Trump family brand, but you know, and I, I'm a Joe Biden supporter. But let let me say something though that I picked up to that point. Joe Biden, Vice President Biden, was speaking to America. I think Donald Trump was speaking to certain swing states, and he has become extremely adept and successful at that. He wasn't trying to convince people in California, New York, to like him. What he was trying to do as he responded to the issue around uh, natural gas and oil refiners, he's counting electoral votes. And and I take a different position. I don't think this campaign is over. Uh, two people changed their mind, and maybe just because I've you know, been in races where they are decided at the last minute. This campaign is yet to be decided, and I think Democrats will make a huge strategic error to assume somehow that Joe Biden got it and he's getting ready to ride off to the uh, White House. This campaign is still hanging in the balance. Sam? You know, it, it, I, I think for most Americans, the he says, he said, he said, she said, whatever phrase you want to use, is getting so old. The attacks on each other's families are getting so old. Um, all he's got to do, all the president has to do is simply, mm -hmm. you know, Joe Biden isn't as squeaky clean as he acts. Like and there's an effect, and I think the president has done that, irrespective of the veracity of the New York Post story or not. Uh, it's a talking point. It's an it's an image. I, I think the bigger issue, candidly, as we're approaching the end of the campaign, is how do you get the female vote if you're the president? And you know, Karen talked a little bit about this before. I generally think every election is the year of the woman. 
And whether we're talking about the <laughs> race, whether we're talking about the presidential race, I haven't really seen enough from either candidate demanding or presenting the argument to vote for them. Um, we're, we're starting to run short on time, Karen. Uh, uh, I love what Sam just said about all the elections being about the women voters, which they are in many ways. But to conclude uh, this conversation, did you see anything? Uh, we now believe, based on every poll, that Georgia is a dead heat between Biden and Trump. Will this debate make any difference to uh, how that plays out? So I think, one, I think some of what Trump bringing up certain things was playing to the base. It was playing to certain voters to remind them of, of key points. I think the issue with the Bidens and his son is complicated, and most Americans don't want to dig in and probably Georgians and figure out exactly what that is all about. And I think that, you know, Vice President Biden has to respond in a certain way to questions about that, as well as the president has a way to say that he's different. He's not been in politics winning or making money off of that. So they have two messages that they could play to voters and talk to. Now, whether it's really affected in Georgia, I don't know. We've talked about 2.3 million people have already cast their ballots in Georgia. My thoughts are most people are already on the in the camp that they're going to be in. Maybe there's a few women out there who are still undecided, and the president would certainly and the vice president need to speak to them. Jim, you get the Very last quick. word. Yeah, very quickly. I think Biden is helped a, a great deal by the fact that this has been dragged out. This is not an October surprise. We went through this this time last year with the entire impeachment hearings. Hearings. This is what the impeachment was 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 about about the search for dirt on Joe Biden. And so it's not much of a surprise. Uh, I think it's baked in the cake, as you would say. All right. Jim Galloway, the final word in today and this week's Political Rewind. Jim, thank you so much. You'll be back with me on Monday's show, I'm glad to say. Michael Thurman, Sam Olins, Karen Owen. You're going to be, all three of you, back with Jim and me next Friday as we come down to really the uh, end stage of this race. Uh, so as we leave you this week, my thanks to Sam Burmes-Dawes, Jesse Neiswanger, Emily Amelia Brock for uh, the great work that uh, they're doing uh, to keep this show moving forward in the midst of a pandemic. I hope you all have a very good weekend. I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, wear your mask, and please go out and get a flu shot. See you all next week.